Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, writer Ivy Pakoda on her LA-based novel, Wonder Valley. Ivy Pakoda grew up in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels The Art of Disappearing, Visitation Street and Wonder Valley, which is the book we're going to be talking about today. Her writing has appeared in publications including the Los Angeles Review of Books, the Los Angeles Times, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. She lives in Los Angeles currently and teaches creative writing at Studio 526 in Skid Row, where she helped found Skid Row Zine. Ivy, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much. So before we talk about the book, I want to talk about Skid Row. Skid Row is a term that everybody knows in the UK, but I don't think most people would understand that it's actually a place. It is a place. It's um, a neighborhood in downtown Los Angeles. It's not an official neighborhood. They were just denied permission to found their own neighborhood council, which is very disappointing, um, which is a local branch of non-official government, but it means that it's a neighborhood. It is the largest homeless community in the world. It is a sprawling community, a neighborhood that reaches from Alameda Street to Los Angeles Street and from, I don't know, the borders are so fluid because it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but it is a definite neighborhood in downtown. And it's a lot different than people think. You know, superficially, it looks like you might imagine homeless people sleeping on the streets. I don't know. It's more. I, I, it's a bit more of an American thing, though. Being around London recently, I do see a lot of people sleeping on the streets in sleeping bags, but in LA, we are allowed, people are allowed to sleep in tents. So the streets are just completely lined with tents. And then there are official encampments that people, so not official, but like ad hoc encampments where people all live together. And it's unique and interesting. And it has a lot more depth and um, social development than many people think. And what about the sort of the streets around? So obviously, like Los Angeles, like anywhere now, is a place that's getting more and more expensive to live mm -hmm. so is the sort of area gentrifying it's a very good question so it's very interesting the location of skid row it is so there's downtown la which was the sort of 
movie mecca in the before the 1920s and Charlie Chaplin had built his theater for his own premieres there and there are a bunch of these huge theaters on Broadway and then after the 20s the movie industry for many reasons moved to the west where they could build bigger studios and downtown had been very cool and very vibrant and became derelict and there were a lot of these older and downtown's also where Bunker Hill is which is where a lot of the noir stories take place a lot of noir movies are set in Bunker Hill Skid Row is at the far south side of downtown and south of Skid Row is a warehouse district. And in most, you know, first world cities, when you have a warehouse district, suddenly you get artists. And so downtown is coming back and the warehouse district, which is called the arts district, is gentrifying at an alarming rate. And Skid Row is squeezed between these neighborhoods. Now you'll see if you look at real estate listing that there are apartments on San Pedro Street, which is like literally in the heart of Skid Row. For me, that's not a problem. For a lot of people, I think they'd be quite surprised <laughs> that they're buying an apartment in Skid Row. Um, and, you know, it is a, it, it is a problem. Um, but I worry, of course, that – well, it's interesting because the rents that are r rising have nothing to do with the people on the street. There is low-income housing, and they're trying to build more. And I'm not saying it's perfect, but there are a lot of plans afoot to get more low-income housing and to convert the old police plaza um, Parker Center into low-income housing but um, these two neighborhoods, the Arts District and um, downtown, are starting to expand into that area. So we'll see what's going to happen. You know, they try to sweep people off the streets more regularly. But at the same time, the homeless population of Los Angeles is exploding at an exponential rate. So it it seems like the there's no way to get rid of Skid Row. And so this arts program that you that you work on, tell us about that. So um, Studio 526 is an art studio that's affiliated with a... Um, multi-platform outreach center that was formerly called LAMP, which stood for the Los Angeles Men's Project, which they had to change recently to, um, although it's a beautiful name for like, a, you know, a place that deals with homelessness and poverty, um, to the people concern. And um, the people concern provides all different types of services from emergency shelter to um, long-term housing. They have a bunch of buildings for long-term housing to various educational services like um, uh, money management, healthcare, um, but they also have this incredible art studio, which, you know, it, it seems better than the art studio in many high schools. It's super vibrant. There's a music room and there's um, painting and photography. And I run the creative writing section of it, or I teach at the creative writing section of it. Most people who are part of the studio come every day, and they're very extended studio hours, four to five hours a day if they want. And I run the creative writing um, workshop on Mondays, and I also run something called Skid Row Zine, which is a you know traditional zine, like an ad hoc magazine, for um, voices of Skid Row to celebrate like the joy and the positivity of life downtown. That's what they say. People don't say I live in Skid Row. They say I went downtown, which I think is really cool. And beyond, obviously, you know, the the, the base level of just somewhere for people to, to be at the day off the street. So are you like, which is a good in itself, obviously. What are some of the people that you that take the class like? I mean, how are you getting um, people that are, you know, that are Okay, so, so, well, if you take the class, you have to be at least part of LAMP or, or the people concerned. So they just changed it. You have to be somewhat vetted by the studio. So people aren't just wandering in off the street. There is some checks and balances, although we don't have mental health checks and balances. So if someone's having a bad day, we have no one to, like, we, there's no guard who's dealing with that. And that's something that we, um... so the people are a little different than you might imagine. Um, most of them, well, many of them do not actually live on the street anymore. They've been housed or they found their own housing or they're moving into, you know, shelter for HIV positive, trans. Uh, LAMP, uh, the people concern is one of the only um, 
programs that doesn't require sobriety for um, inclusivity, which is great because like you wouldn't have anybody. Yeah, I don't really understand because I'm not like I'm not really on the like um, activist outreach side. I don't really understand a lot of the way things work, and that's one of the things that kind of blows my mind. Like. You know, is everyone lying? Um, so the lamp has, um, you know, people are addicted and um, not, you know, if you're visibly addicted and you're in the studio, that's a real problem. But, you know, people, you know, use medical marijuana to cope and whatever. So most of the people are no longer the kind of homeless you might imagine, like collecting cans and bottles, although some of them do. Most of them no longer sleep on the street, although all of them have. The majority of our students are not students, I should say participants or writers because they really are artists, are um, 50 and up. So they're they're an older generation, um, though oddly we'll have some college students. There's a couple who come who are in college and they live on the street and they go to Los Angeles Community College and they're a very odd couple for various reasons. And um, I can't ask too many questions about people's stories. If they tell me, they tell me. If they don't, they don't. But I do, you know, many of the people I know everything about their situation. Um, But, you know, some of them, one of our students is a writer. She's an artist. She went to art school in her 60s. She got cancer, lost all her money and wound up living on the street or as she says, in the elements. And she's got a daughter and who lives in a house in Texas and a sister who lives in a really nice house with a pool in Pasadena. So it's like, you know, they're, and she's incredibly well educated. She went to art school. She lives from Queens, New York. Another guy, he's like, um, he worked as an activities coordinator at a senior citizen center and he just made a lot of mistakes in his life and he's trying to write that ship, but he can lead the class when I'm not there. And he's, you know, he's like completely, you would have no, I mean, not that, I keep saying this, but you would have no idea if he was sitting in this room today that he struggled the sort of issues that you might imagine make you homeless. So it's really cool. And they're, you know, some of them are incredibly literate, incredibly well read, completely capable of writing at a very high level that I would never need to edit or, you know, step in. And some of them, well, many, many of whom are actually immigrants have uh, who have English as a second language, have more struggles with the writing. But um you know, it is a the level of education kind of blew my mind when I first got there. So, Wonder Valley. Let's let's talk about oh. the book. How, oh, that's right. <laughs> how would you describe the novel? Um, hmm. Well, I, it's a multi-perspective novel stretching from the desert outside of Los Angeles, the Mojave, to Skid Row, that examines how five disparate characters who are all searching for redemption, how their lives come together in surprising and revelatory ways, uh, many of whom intersect in Skid Row in Los Angeles. And I'd normally say, why LA? Obviously, we've already mentioned you live there and we've been talking about it literally for 10 minutes. But um, this is obviously a very different LA. We think we're familiar with LA from, you know, obviously from Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Um, But this clearly is a very different LA to what we normally see. Well, that's why I wrote about it, because, you know, I'm not from LA. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, the LA that I imagined I was going to live in when I moved there is that LA, like Beverly Hills 90210 and Joan Didion and, you know, Malibu. And, you know, I'd like, I never go to the beach. Um, I just started recently because I have a daughter and that's something we do, but I never go to Beverly Hills. I'm rarely on the West side. And, you know, I, for me, I need to write about the place where I'm living. It's very hard to imagine. Like, I don't understand when someone goes to Greece and they're like, oh, I'm writing a whole book set on this place. I went on vacation for three days. Like, that's incredible. Because do you really know it? But um, I, I have to know Los Angeles. I have to know the place I'm writing about. And that happens to be Los Angeles. But it's very fraught to about LA because you know I don't know it that well or the parts I know are a little bit different and I didn't set out to like pull the 
you know, curtain back on this underexplored or underrepresented um, part of the city. But I suddenly realized that the places that I hang out in in L.A. are slightly different and that they're quite underrepresented. And it was really cool when I started to write to realize that the city I was writing about is not something I'd ever read about before. And I thought, that's really why L.A. I was like, I have to write about this. You know, I've never read about it. And what do you think? I mean, obviously, as you said, you, you've been there for, for a while and you, you feel you need to be somewhere and get under the skin of it before you actually want to write about it. But what do you think being an outsider, being someone that's from the East Coast brings to that? Well, I mean, a certain amount of distance and I'm not, you know, a certain amount of... Um, inability to be diluted by the whole city. I I am um, also a lot of caution too. Like I'm not pretending to know LA better than anyone else. In fact, I think, you know, writing about a place uh, that you're learning about brings like a, a perspective that is really interesting to readers. You know, I wrote my last previous novels about Brooklyn and I was panicked the whole time because I was like, this is like, this is where I'm from and I have to get it right. And I was so panicked about getting it right that I changed the name of the neighborhood from what it really is, Red Hook, to a fake name just to make sure in case I got it wrong, no one could say anything. And then I changed it back. But um, the idea of being an outsider, and all, none of my characters are from LA, I don't think. All of them have come there. So they're learning about it as I'm learning about it. And sort of that's the perspective I can write from as of people who are just starting starting to experience it for the same amount of time that I have. And that's a, that's obviously, you know, whenever we think of LA again in the sort of popular imagination, it's always people that have come to LA rather than, does anybody come from LA? I mean, yeah, no, yes, people do come from LA, you know, there are many, but yeah, I think that it has this idea of manifest destiny and like a place to sort of reinvent yourself and start over. And I think that's the huge allure and like the also distraction and, you know, the danger of LA is that it affords this idea of possibility that's actually somewhat of a lie like what are you going to achieve there that's like going to happen that couldn't happen somewhere else you know like um and i think people have this like ideal of southern california and some of them really go for that sort of surfer you know laid back vibe i'm just gonna like live on the beach and do all these things though that's becoming increasingly unaffordable um but yeah there there's a definite culture of people from la who are a little bit suspicious of us newcomers writing about it and there are all these conversations like who writes la best is it like joan didion or michael connelly or who's actually not from la you know so it is um yeah it's tricky those are just people that came to LA like 20 or 30 years ago rather yeah than like today yeah yeah like LA seems like the the sort of like American dream writ large this idea that you can go to a place and be anything you want but of course really it's bullshit well yeah because the American dream is like the um the American dream is really something that belongs to white men only you know the American dream didn't really exist for you know African Americans or Native Americans or immigrants crossing the border it's sort of this like construct of white male masculinity and like so it doesn't really work out for a lot of people but because white men often control the world they're pitching this dream to everybody and then a lot of people really don't succeed in you know realizing it but LA of course because the film industry which again was a something that was started by white men you know and put this myth was promulgated you know like hey come and do this you know it's for everybody but it really isn't and that's not to say it isn't a wonderful place it really is it's wild and diverse and unknowable and it's so great to live in a city where there's so much left to explore on a daily basis but like yeah I mean it is this weird embodiment of the American dream in the sense that it's a place where dreams can really be broken. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ivy Pakoda. We're talking about her latest novel, Wonder Valley. And Ivy, the novel starts with a happening, a thing that sort of becomes like an internet sensation, like a meme, a a event. Tell us about that. Well, the book starts with a naked man running uh, the wrong way through traffic during the morning rush hour commute, which is just like such an anathema in Los Angeles. The the rush hour commute is sacred. You don't mess with it. You don't do stupid stuff during it. You don't make people's lives harder by slowing down their already incredibly slow commute. But it's also this great equalizing force. It's one of the only times that everyone in the city, regardless of socioeconomic class or job or whatever, or even if they don't work, like, you know, I, I work, but I work at home. I take my daughter to school. We're all they get tied to traffic. So uh, this is a moment that captures the attention of the entire city, for better or for worse. And then there's there's a series of characters that their story is told repeatedly throughout the book that have some sort of connection to this event. We go sort of backwards and forwards in time as well in, in some of those perspectives. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But tell us about some of the people. Okay, well, there's... Um, the young man who's running through traffic, who I'm not going to tell you who it is, um, because that might give a few things away. There is um, a young man who's just arrived in Los Angeles. He arrived from my previous book, Visitation Street. Um, He is uh, an ex-juvenile offender who has come to Los Angeles to look for his mother, who's living in Skid Row. Um, That's Ren. So can you talk about why you wanted to carry on his story first? Yeah. So in... Like Wonder Valley, Visitation Street is a multi-perspective novel, and I think there are also five characters. Ren is not one of those five characters, but he's the most important person in the book. So he doesn't have a perspective 
And I felt that he had a little more story left to be told. So uh, he came back. Everyone asked me when I was touring for that book, what happened to Ren? Where is he? And I thought, well, I don't know. The book is over. And then I realized I wanted to know. You know, it was kind of a cool um, revelation for me that I the book didn't end, actually. It kept going. Um, there's Tony, a sort of everyman lawyer who witnesses this man running through traffic who has a sort of... Michael Douglas falling down style breakdown and realizes that his life is too um, strictured and boring and he needs to take action. There's Britt, a former collegiate tennis player who has made some terrible mistakes. And she is in both time periods in the novel. At one point, she's living in a commune in the desert. Another point, she's sort of hanging around Skid Row a little bit. And there's James, a young man who's grown up in the desert um, on a commune with his father and whose life just seems to be um, being derailed by his father's practices and the way he's leading the commune. And finally, there's Blake, my favorite character, who's a um, a criminal um, with a partner named Sam, who he's a, he loves, although he's not romantically in love with, who uh, has no idea how to live a life aside from a life of crime, but also understands that crime is um, bad and but just can't see a way to, you know, right the wrongs he's done. So he's conflicted. And all five of those characters have got some past, some sort of thing that they're guilty about or running away from. <laughs> they sure do. But I had no idea until halfway through the book. I was like, oh, it's, it's funny. Like, everyone seems to maybe have, like, killed someone or hurt someone really badly. That's weird. <laughs> I had no idea. So... Let's just talk about that multi-perspective thing again. So as you mentioned, Visitation Street also did that. What is it about that sort of structure that appeals to you? Sure. So um, when I first start writing, I'm really, the first thing that occurs to me, occurs to me to write about is setting. Like I'm obsessed with place and understanding a place and especially writing about Los Angeles. Like I started to write this book in a way to get to know my city. But there's never one way to look at a place. You know, a place is three-dimensional. It's a globe. It's a neighborhood. It's a diorama. So to look at it through one perspective sort of is too narrow, at least for me, or at least for my need to understand a place. I like to sort of pivot around to see it from other perspectives. So it gives a more like three-dimensional take. But the other reason is I don't know what I'm doing when I write. So I'll write to the end of one character, a chapter, a I'm like, hmm, well, that's interesting. I have no idea what's happening with him next. Let's try someone new and see if maybe I can make this link up. So that's the real answer. You mentioned the the commune. and um, This commune's out in the desert uh, near a place called the, the literally named 29 Palms. Um, and it's, you know, as I said, quite a distance from L.A. And it's grim, shall we say, that the goings on on that, on that commune. Where does that commune come from? Well, you know, some of the practices are based on various sort of self-help religions like Est, which now has become Landmark Forum, and another one, another one called Synanon, which was a big sort of like 1960s, 1970s self-help, self-realization religion. Um, it also comes from a friend of mine who grew up in a commune. Um, though I didn't know that when I was writing the book, and it took me a really long time to realize that that was something I had experienced. Um, but it, it's not based on the practices of this commune are not based on the practices of the commune where I had visited. But my friend did grow up in a commune, and his father was the leader of it. So I um, 
really one he struggled with that and sort of I, that's the part that I sort of took was to understand like what it feels like to be to have your father be a leader and telling other people what to do and have other people sort of obey and adhere to your father's teachings whereas you might not want to so that's sort of I married those two ideas of these like California has this huge tradition of fringe religion you know it's the end of the world reinvention the sort of power in the desert. So I married those two things together. That idea of like, what would it be like if your people believed your father, but you knew he was a phony or maybe he wasn't and you just don't understand because you just don't have the belief and this idea that California gives rise to a lot of strange beliefs. And just one more thing for me and then I'll get you to read a bit of Wonder Valley if you would. This is always an interesting question to ask when a, a, a setting of a book is somewhere again that we think we're we're so familiar with from other art forms. Um, but what other what other writing was an influence on this novel particularly? Oh, that's a really interesting question. No one's actually asked me that directly. They always ask you, what are you reading? And then you can't think of a single book you've ever read, <laughs> like, like ever. Um, let's see. I mean, John Fante's Ask the Dust is was a big influence on it. A lot of California books like Walter Mosley, um, not in terms of style, but in terms of the ability for those books to traverse a wide swath of California really interested me. And, you know, some of the books that influence uh, Visitation Street really also influence this book structurally. Carson McCullers, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which has a multi-perspective take on a small town. Um and this book by Yi Young Lee called The Vagrants, which is about an execution and about a bunch of different people sort of reacting to that. And then, of course, the book that always influences me and in everything is Don DeLillo's Underworld, because it has this amazing prologue that can stand alone and sort of sets the whole book in motion about a baseball game. And, you know, this is sort of my Don DeLillo homage, you know, the idea that there's this event that sort of captures the rapt attention of the city. Okay, um... Los Angeles, 2010. He is almost beautiful, running with the San Gabriels over one shoulder. The rise of the Hollywood freeway as it arcs above the Pasadena freeway over the other. He is shirtless, the hint of swimmer's muscle rippling below his tan skin, his arms pumping in a one-two rhythm in sync with the beat of his feet. There's a chance you envy him. 7 a.m. traffic is already jammed through downtown, ground to a standstill as cars attempt to cross five lanes, moving in increments so small their progress is nearly invisible. They merge in jerks and starts from the Pasadena freeway onto the Hollywood or the Santa Ana, but he is flowing freely, reverse commuting through the stalled vehicles. The drivers watch from behind their steering wheels, distracted from toggling between radio stations, fixing their makeup in the rear view, talking to friends back east for whom the day is fully formed. They left home early, hoping to avoid the bumper-to-bumper, -bumper, the inevitable slowdown of their mornings. They've mastered their mathematical calculations, the distance times rate times time of the trip to work. Yet they are stuck. In the city of drivers, he is a rebuke. He runs unburdened by the hundreds of sacrifices these commuters have made to arrive at this traffic jam on time. The breakfast missed, the children unseen, the husband abandoned in bed, the night cut short on account of the early morning, the weak gas station coffee, the unpleasant carpool, the sleep loss, the hasty shower, last night's clothes, last night's makeup. He ignores the commuters sealed off in their climate-controlled cars, trapped in the first news cycle in the wheel of top 40. 
He holds the straight line through the morning's small desperations, the problems waiting to unfold, the desire to be elsewhere, to be anywhere but here today and tomorrow and all the mornings that run together into one citywide tangle of freeways and on-ramp closures and sig alerts, a whole day narrowed to the stop and go. His expression is mid-marathon serene, focused on the goal and yet not overwhelmed by the distance. He shows no strain. But the woman in a battered soft-top convertible will say he looked drugged. The man in a souped-up hatchback claims he was crazy high, totally loco, you know what I mean. A couple of teenage girls driving an SUV way beyond their pay grade insist that, although they barely noticed him, he looked like a superhero, but not one of the cool ones. The day is an indeterminate weatherless gray. The sun is just another thing delayed this morning. Beneath the ten, the air over the bungalows of West Adams and Pico Union is a dull apocalyptic color the color of bad things or their aftermath. The other city, the remembered and imagined one, stretches west, past the sprawling ethnic neighborhoods where Koreans overlap with Salvadorans and Armenians back into ties. It begins in the big-name crosstown boulevards lined with deco theaters, faded tropical motels and restaurants with sentinel valets, and ends where the streets run into the ocean. But in this trench where the 110 sinks through downtown, that place is barely a memory. Here, there is only the jam of the cars and the blank faces of the glass towers. The runner is on pace for an eight-minute mile, or so it seems, to the man behind the wheel of his SUV, who woke up late and didn't have time for his own jog. He missed his pre-dawn tour of Beverlywood, the empty silence of the residential neighborhood when he visits other people's cul-de-sacs, peering into living rooms of dark houses as his pedometer records his footsteps, marking calories and distance until the morning's ritual is complete. He wonders what went unseen, coyotes slinking home before sunup, a car haphazardly left in a driveway after one too many, a man sleeping in the blue glare of his TV, a teenager sneaking through her back gate, liquor bottles shoved into bags and left at someone else's curb. During these stolen hours before his wife and kids need him, he believes he glimpses his neighborhood's secret soul, seeing behind the facades of the bungalows and the manicured squares of unremarkable lawns into hidden discontents. There's never anyone to encourage him on these early morning runs, no one to witness his labored breathing in the sixth mile, his heroic triumph over his ebbing willpower. Watching the runner navigate the stationary cars, this driver is unaware of the jellied muscles of his own legs after a weekend's drinking. He wants to reach back for the hour he cheated from himself, when he lay in bed and instead of lacing up his shoes, rolled over, checking the clock to see how long before others needed him. Without his run, today will belong to the commuters in their cars, to the team waiting for him at work, and now to this shirtless jogger cutting through traffic on the 110. He rolls down his window and wedges his torso out to watch the runner pass. The man's mechanics aren't bad, his chest upright, shoulders relaxed, hands not balled into fists. He cups a hand over his mouth, shouting at the man to keep going. Then he sees that the runner is naked. He pulls back inside, raises the window, and busies himself with his cell phone, moving on to the next thing in his day. So I've been talking to Ivy Pakoda. We've been talking about her new novel, Wonder Valley, which is out now in the UK from Indigo Press. Ivy, thank you so much for coming in and talking about it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. 
can find us on iTunes. And if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.